0: Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, I have an interview with Dean King. King is an award-winning author of 10 nonfiction books. Dean relishes the adventures involved in making history come to life while at the same time diligently searching out the truth and turning up new historical details. The focus of our conversation is his newest book titled Guardians of the Valley, John Muir and the Friendship that Saved Yosemite. Please enjoy this fascinating conversation. The lines in journalism have always been blurred with politics, particularly in the 19th century. But in an ideal world, should journalism have a political bent or try to remain as factually neutral as possible? Well, that's a big question to kick off with. Well, it depends
1: on what you're writing for and, and, you know, who you're writing for. And, you know, if, if it's straight news journalism, then it, you know, shouldn't have a bent. But there's plenty of room for editorial and most newspapers were started you know throughout time to have an editorial edge we tend to think that things have gotten that news has
0: gotten very slanted at this point but it was always that way i brought that initial question up in part to kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about which is activism and journalism and being intertwined can you kind of set the stage for us the journalistic context that we're going to be entering as we talk about Muir and Johnson's relationship, can you kind of give us a little background on how journalism was different in the 19th century and some of the different facets that make it unique compared to what we read in our local or national newspapers?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not sure how different journalism was then from today. I think it's always been, there's always been a point of view. And, you know, traditionally people started newspapers because they wanted to express a point of view. If anything, it, I think it's it's more neutral today, which you know might, might flabbergast some people. But you know, and and I think Muir really started out writing. You know, some of his early work is about you know the Douglas squirrel or the water oozle. You know, very beautiful, just nature writing that that didn't have a point of view so much or didn't have a political point of view that he wanted to make. And
0: that would change over time. Mm. So you chose to write about a highly mythologized character, John Muir, and there's a big bibliography of works on Muir. What was the impetus to add something new to that bibliography, that historiography of work?
1: Well, I like to, what I do with, like to do with history is to get in there, wrestle with it and take historical characters sort of off the pedestal to, you know, make them real again. And and so when I go in there, I want to take you out on the trail. I want you to sort of exist with the, that person because I think then we understand them better. We can relate to them better as human beings as opposed to heroes that are way above and beyond us. And I think by making them people again, like us, it inspires us to be more active because we realize, hey, we're not that that different from these people that we revere. And and, and so it em- empowers us ultimately. And I think John Muir, what motivated me to write about John Muir initially was just going to Yosemite National Park and seeing the view from Inspiration Point. And, you know, being an East Coast boy, I was inspired by that view. I, w- I was really amazed by the scale and the magnificence of it. And it, it sort of opened opened my eyes to, you know, a different view of America in some ways, and I wanted to be there and exist with it. I, I then, you know, as I looked into the literature associated with the Valley, I realized that John Muir sort of embodied it, and then I started reading about his his life. I read the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of him, and I realized that he's an extremely interesting person with a lot to say, but that his life was so sprawling that it was hard to... It was hard to understand. It was hard to get your arms around what made him a a great American, somebody we should know about, and what, you know, to to figure out exactly what we should learn from John Muir. And so, as I went through the body of work and all the the background, all his writing, what I, and, and I don't write biography, I write narrative nonfiction. And so, I was looking for that narrative. That narrative arc that would give us the, the really clean story, the the you know, the the main light right into what makes John Muir interesting, it valuable, and what we need to know about him.
0: Mm. And was it through your research into Muir that you found Johnson? Or did were you familiar with this character before you started your investigation into Muir? I, I did not know Robert Underwood Johnson before I started the research.
1: And when I discovered him the light bulb went off, Eureka, this is it. He's, you know, this is where I need to focus. And there were some, you know, some other trails that I went down before getting there. One of the first things I read was John Muir's thousand mile walk to the Gulf. And I I, I was blown away. I loved it. I was like, this is amazing. I need to go do this. I'm from the, I'm from Virginia. And, you know, that was through the South and right after the Civil War, a fascinating period to me. And, and I thought, well, I'm going to go redo this trail and, you know, write all about this. And In the end, after I really figured out what the book was about, that became one paragraph in the book. For the first half of John Muir's life, uh, his mentor, mentor Jean Carr is is really fascinating. She's the wife of a, a professor he had at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and a fascinating relationship. She like her was a, a botanist, and he was also into geology. But they really related of their love for plants and this sort of uh, simpatico they had with one another. But it was also, you know, an older woman, a married woman who seemed to have followed him out to California and, you know, all this intrigue. And, and they have a great correspondence and she will send Emerson and other you know, brilliant men to go find Muir in, in the park. She was uh, another person I considered, well, maybe the book is, you know, based upon that relationship. But once I found Johnson and saw, you know, what he meant to Muir and Muir's legacy, again, I knew... You know, the the Gene Carr relationship, while it was really interesting, was a bit secondary. And the Johnson relationship was very fascinating in really the the central story here.
0: Can we do a brief sketch of Johnson? I think most of my listeners are familiar with the broad sketches of Muir, who Muir was. But and we're going to dig into their relationship in a second. But just a brief sketch of who he was.
1: Yeah, Johnson was the son of a country lawyer in Indiana, and he was very close to his father and shared a love of literature with him and would, as a young guy, spend his days in the courthouse and um, even in the jailhouse talking to you know people who'd been put behind bars and meeting them and learning them and developed this really social, interesting social understanding in engagement at the age of 11, Johnson told his parents, "Hey, I'm going to work for the the depot master at the train station. He needs somebody to help him." And they're like, "What? No, you know, you're not going to do that. You're, you know, you're you're a boy still." And he's like, he he convinced them. He said, "No, I'm going to do this." And he learned how to use the telegraph. Uh and there was another young telegrapher, a 17-year-old named Thomas Edison who typed so fast that the other guys in the office didn't couldn't communicate with him. But Robert Underwood Johnson could. So he and Edison would send messages back and forth to one another. And so Johnson is 15 years younger than Muir, who was born in 1838. So he was a boy during the Civil War, and he's taking down messages that are life-altering their messages that somebody's son has been killed in the war he even has to get on a horse and go out and deliver the message to a family you know as a young boy and then when the news comes over the telegraph that uh, abraham lincoln has been assassinated it's johnson who takes it down and goes out on the in the depot and, and, and makes the announcement so he was really this a precocious young guy muir also was a precocious young man as well. So they have that in common. Johnson will go on. His father dies young, unfortunately. Johnson goes on to a Quaker college, graduates in a class of four, and goes to Chicago, where he works for the bookseller Scribner, the publisher Scribner in, in bookselling, and is there during the, the Great Fire of Chicago. So he, he has a knack for being present at, at big events. You know, that's somewhat uncanny and a great way to see the history through his eyes. After working as, as a, a bookseller's assistant in Chicago, they realize he's a, a very bright young guy. And the bookseller goes to New York and, and engages with Scribner magazine and finds him an editorial position there. So Johnson moves to New York City, becomes an assistant editor at Scribner magazine, which then becomes Century magazine. And Century Magazine will be one of the leading lights in the social conversation of, of the nation. And he will help make it even bigger. The Century Magazine doubled its circulation when it did a history of the Civil War, which is one of our building block histories of the Civil War. For three years, they interviewed um, the leaders on both sides of the major battles and ran these stories It doubled their circulation from 125,000 to 250,000. The editor realized how intelligent and charming Johnson was, and he even said, "Look, we need to get Ulysses S. Grant involved in this, and you're the guy to get him." Johnson goes to Grant, and Grant says, "No, you know, I'm too busy. I can't do it." But he was involved in a he was defrauded and lost a lot of money. Grant did. And and so when Johnson came back to him, he said, Well, yes, I think I will participate. He needed the money. So Johnson then edited Grant and really helped Grant become the writer that he would become in creating his great memoir. So that you know, that that's a, a bit of a sketch of of Johnson. He becomes the editor-in-chief of Century Magazine eventually, which is a very proactive magazine that at one point there's no international copyright law and the nation really badly needs it. So they they tell Johnson, "Look, you're going to be in charge of this. We're we're assigning you to that. You're still you still work for the magazine, but you're going to go down to Washington DC for 6 months and get a bill passed. And they had access to guys like Mark Twain and other, you know, great writers of the day and and Johnson marshaled that group to get international copyright law passed so he had both this editorial knack and a knack for activism and you
0: know political action mm-hmm. they seem kind of like an unlikely pair and you 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 flesh this out in the book kind of very different worlds but where are they similar i noticed that they have some similar upbringing both strict calvinist families mm-hmm. do you attribute any of their similar approaches to dealing with world's problems to their upbringing or are there certain other attributes that draw them together? Yeah, you know, I think they had a, a, probably a deep faith from
1: their religious upbringing. And when I put their story in context, they're really a, a proto-environmentalism. They're a bridge from the religious and romantic love of nature to a more scientific treatment of nature from Wordsworth and Robert Burns and, you know, the explorer Alexander von von Humboldt, who said all things are connected, which is something that Muir would repeat and make very popular, to Theodore Roosevelt. And you can see in both of these guys this, you know, deep faith that was common in that time, but also a scientific, scientific minds that are looking at evidence and using logical thought to try to improve society, improve life for humankind really. So I think they had commonality there. Johnson loved nature as well and and loved it from boyhood the way Muir did. And so they really had a common bond once they got together and went out to
0: Yosemite together. Do you think their relationship was one of utility or just also authentic in terms of having an interpersonal relationship?
1: Well, one of the wonderful things about writing this book was getting to spend several years in four decades of correspondence between these two guys. And it, it's really like, you know, being part of their conversation. It was every, every six, it took six days for a letter to go across the country. And so they would have overlapping letters, and you'd get a little bit of confusion sometimes, as in like a Jane Austen novel of, you know, misunderstandings. And it was really wonderful to go through these letters and, parse that out. Fortunately, most of their correspondence, you know, has been saved and is at the University of the Pacific in Stockton. So I was able really to live with these guys and watch that relationship grow and deepen and, and watch them, you know, have the typical kind of conflict that you're going to have even, you know, between an editor and a writer or or friends over time and see how they dealt with those things and maintain their relationship. And it, it, it only grew. It only grew, and even in, in their later life, when they lost this battle to try to preserve Hetch Hetchy, and San Francisco was allowed to dam it and and create a reservoir there, the the correspondence between the two of them then is is just. It's heartbreaking and touching, and Johnson had lost his job at the the magazine at that point, and and Muir's trying to buck up Johnson, all, you know, and saying, "Look, we did the we did the work we needed to do. It was not in vain. It will it will
0: win out. You know, people will do what's right for nature. This is a hiccup." And Muir and Johnson had. While they had a, the same topic they were writing about. They had similar styles, both in their writing and how they approach it. Can you distinguish between their their styles and how those, you know, interacted and occasionally conflicted?
1: Well, you know, this really was a situation where you had a writer and an editor, and you had a writer who, I think he knew the, the, the powers that he had, but I think it was also very difficult for Muir to get the writing out. And he was very sensitive if there was noise in the house. He was a great family man. He had a wife and two daughters, but they played the piano. And if somebody's playing the piano, he couldn't work. (laughs) And he ran a fruit ranch Matt Martinez. And that was very distracting because there was a lot of work to be done there. And sometimes he had 50 guys working in the fields and he managed all that. I think he was pretty type A. He stayed on top of all the details. And so those distractions were always in his head. But you know Johnson would need work from him, and and Muir would would always say, "Look, I'm not, you know, because you know I have a hard time when when their demands put on me. When I'm just writing, when I'm free flowing, it comes easily. But when you ask me for something, it, it's a bit tougher. And there were times when Johnson couldn't get the work out of Muir. You know, he, he Muir was trying, and Muir was frustrated with himself, and you can see that in their correspondence back and forth. And the 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 book that I wrote is. Pretty long, but it was a lot longer with all this back and forth editorial stuff at one point that I really loved. But my editor convinced me that I probably needed to trim it down a little bit. But that that writer-editor relationship was really fascinated me. And but 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 Johnson knew his limits too. He knew how to edit Muir. He knew how to be forceful but careful and respectful and always was. And Johnson sent, you know, Johnson was a poet and sent his poetry to Muir and Muir read it. Genuinely admired it, but also offered him criticism. And Johnson would say, Muir, that was the best criticism I got from anybody, any critic, any other poet. What you said was real and honest, and it was, because you could see that there was this real respect between the two guys and that, uh, that they could say what they felt to one another.
0: Would we have the Sierra Club if it wasn't for Johnson? We would have maybe had
1: it in a different form. There were a couple different groups thinking about it, but Johnson was the real impetus at one point where he told Muir, look, I could put together a group of concerned citizens out here in New York, and we could raise money to fight for the mountains and forests in California, but you don't want that. You don't want New Yorkers, East Coasters, telling you what to do out there. You need a group in California. And Muir pushed back saying, well, that may be well and good, but I'm, a, I'm an explorer and a writer, and I don't get into the political fray. That's not me. Well, Johnson never took no for an answer, just as he didn't take it with Grant. He figured out a way to circle back and get Grant. He, 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 he worked with some Berkeley professors and some professionals in San Francisco, said, hey, have a meeting, invite Muir and start a group. They did that, and they elected Muir president. So Muir couldn't say no. You know, he was kind of stuck with the job. And he would grow to, to love uh, the Sierra Club, which was formed this way. He was elected president when they formed it in 1892 and re- would remain the president until 1914 when he died. And at one point in a letter, he he writes Johnson, says, Johnson, you've turned me into a lobbyist. You know, and you can hear the crankiness in his voice, but you also know that he 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 loves that, that uh, John, Johnson has transformed him in a way from, you know, a guy writing in, well, Muir never had an ivory tower, but just writing alone in the forest to his would-be readers out there, to somebody who really was able to have an impact on legislation and on the way we would treat nature, which meant so
0: much to Muir. Part of what they were protecting or guarding Yosemite from was the way it was managed by the state government up until it became a national park. Can you talk a little bit about some of the problems before it became a national park that led Muir and Johnson to be so concerned about its preservation? Abraham Lincoln created a state park out
1: of Yosemite Valley during the Civil War. And, and and so Muir discovered it just a few years later, 1868, when he came out there and decided that he, he came there in the middle of winter when there's a big snow pack and bears roaming. And he and his, a, a guy who went out there with him named Chilwell nearly starved. You know, it, it was tough. But Muir realized how beautiful it was and knew that he wanted to to be there. And so he got a job as a shepherd, came back in after that. And one of his first, you know, he did go into the valley that first time, but the ne- his next approach to the valley is from up above, and he's looking down over Yosemite Falls looking down through the water and watching the sunlight refract through it and seeing God in it it's really this kind of mystical experience seeing the the the, the water come down and and he and he sees that it's dying right there at the edge of this cliff but it's then being reborn right in front of his eyes in the air becoming something different and going down to into the valley to to bring new life and he understands that that you can't save the valley without saving the land, the hillsides around it. He, he's up there as a shepherd and he sees this the sheep eating the roots of the plants and in, in how he sees the damage it's doing and and he quickly understands that, well, you know, if you let the sheep eat all the the plant life up here, there's going to be erosion into the waterways. That's going to wash down the valley. It, you know, you you can't you can't save this place unless you save the 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 whole thing. He says it's like, you know, trying to save the fingers without saving the palm of the hand, and and so Lincoln had o- only given the the valley to the state to preserve and protect for, for all people to to enjoy, and so he takes Johnson there in eighteen eighty nine and shows him first of all how beautiful it is in person, even though you know Johnson knew from seeing photographs and hearing what Muir had to write. But, uh, but also showing him that the damage that was continuing to be done, that, uh, that tourism was out of control, that livestock was, you know, feeding in, in, the, in the fields there and running kind of wild. And that uh, there, there was no plan for managing the valley, that, that trees were being cut down for views and just in a haphazard way. And, and Johnson sees that as well. They, spend the, they go up to Tuolumne Meadows. Spend a couple of days up there, and that's when Johnson says, "Look, Muir, I, I see what you're saying. I agree. You write me two articles, I'll publish them in Century Magazine. Then I'll take them down to to Washington D.C. and put them on the desk of every congressman, and we'll get a national park bill passed, and, and and save this place properly. And lo and behold, that's what happens. You know, Muir's a little skeptical. He's tried a little environmental activism, and It hadn't worked in the past." And, but but he agrees to do it, and Johnson makes that happen. In one way, that's the beginning of their problems, because once this national park was created, it was like it was a donut around the state park. And so you still had a state park that was being managed by the state commissioners, not up to snuff, according to Muir and Johnson. And also, it created a, another a layer of management. So getting roads in and, and that sort of thing, managing the two together, was very difficult. And immediately all the mining interests, the shep- shepherding in- interests, the logging interests all started chipping away at that national park through their state representatives because, you know, they didn't want that land taken off the table. It was valuable, valuable to them. And they were able to graze on it, and you know, for free. And, and so that would be another battle that would be fought over the next 10 years that Muir and Johnson would would take on to have The state park receded to the federal government to create one national park, to create the
0: park that looks like we know it today. Yeah. Why weren't they successful in the Hetch Hetchy fight? What were some of the unique challenges with that? Was it just the the inevitable development and the inevitable control of water required for the urban complex? I mean, was it just inevitable that that was going to happen? Or were there certain tactics that they used that made them less successful? Well, I think that Mure and Johnson in the battle for Hetch Hetchy were were under, under
1: armed, undermanned the entire time. And they they did a really noble job of staving off the city of San Francisco, which wanted to put their reservoir there using logic and the influence that they had in the government. They had several presidents would support them and interiors of the I mean, interior ministers would also support them in their battle to to prevent it. There were other rivers that could be used at the time. You could also take the water lower down on the Tuolumne instead of up in the National Park. But of course, San Francisco wanted to get it from the National Park because they wouldn't have to con- go through a, a very costly process of condemning property and, and creating reservoirs lower down. They also wanted the elevation so that they could create electric power, power in, in the income from that, which would indeed be very valuable. So... The Sierra Club and Johnson and Muir did an amazing job bootstrapping that battle for a long time, and, and Muir paid for a lot of it just out of his back pocket. He he would tell Johnson, "Look, Johnson, you go down to Washington and you 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 talk to you know the the people we need to talk to the, in Congress, and I'll pay your expenses." And so they did that for a while, and San Francisco was basically about to to give up. They did have a big problem because the water that san francisco was using for the city was owned by a monopoly that, that was really bilking the people so they did have a legitimate issue here and and even Muir and johnson would say look we understand it, it, you know water for the city is very important if it were the only place to get it we would you know we would say of course you need to get it here but there are other places to get it ultimately it was the the great earthquake and fire of 1906 that destroyed San Francisco in in that day that would change the tide of this political battle. It gave San Francisco a political clout or or you know, that, that they could use that they could cash in because they they the the nation was sympathetic to their pleas. I mean, it was a devastating natural disaster, one of the worst the nation's ever seen and and so they were able to come back and 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 press the battle again fight in congress and ultimately after a lengthy you know decade and a half battle win it and and get the water rights to Hetch Hetchy.
0: Hmm. We're going to pivot now to talk kind of about lessons and thinking about modern environmental movements based on what we've learned about Johnson and Muir and their campaigns. So are there do you observe any current partnerships in the climate change movement that resemble the things that Muir and Johnson were doing? And is there any lessons that climate activists or people working in conservation can take from what they did successfully? I think so. First of all,
1: I think it's somewhat of a, a general misunderstanding at times that you know the Sierra Club and John Muir were not about keeping nature pristine. They they really were established, and Muir believed that the, the, what we wanted to do was bring people to nature. Sierra Club was for getting people out. In you know, it started with the idea of let's have an alpine library, you know, so people can get more knowledge to go out and, and explore the mountains. And Muir, from that time when he looked over that waterfall and saw God in the in the in the refraction of the light through it, he Yosemite Valley was. A temple to him. It was God's temple. It was was the greatest manifestation of of God on earth. And so he always felt that you needed to bring people to nature so they could have a spiritual fulfillment, awakening, meaning in life. And and so when they started the, the Sierra Club, that's what that was about. And they brought more people to nature. And Muir believed that, well, that's what you do. You bring people to nature. They then fall in love with it and want to preserve and protect it. So it it was kind of a, a a grassroots movement, and you can see the Sierra grew into the you know the biggest environmental entity on the planet, really. And and also you know when Muir was fighting for Hetch Hetchy, he was very active at bringing women's clubs in, garden clubs, and in getting all these people to to fight for for the cause. And you know they didn't have all the power that. San Francisco had in, in, in all the money and resources, but they had voices and 5,000 letters were landing on the desks of these Congressmen in some you know trying to keep them from giving away these water rights to San Francisco. And the Congressmen were were throwing their hands up saying, what is this? You know, they hadn't seen this before. Stop, Tell them to stop. this is horrible, you know but it but it was really the beginning of of a major grassroots environmental movement that I think we still have in many ways, I think, you know, not much has changed in some ways, you know, Muir was fighting the industrial entities that that existed at the time. And we're still that way. I mean, and and I think you have, there's a lag there between what the people think and want and, and understand and need and getting political action through the system against big money interests. So I think the essential lesson that that we get from Muir and Johnson is in rolling up the sleeves, which they both did and, and working hard. When you read this book, I think, and when you read their correspondence, you'll see, you know, Muir is cranking out brochures, broadsides, you know, for his cause, working tirelessly. Johnson's running the magazine, going down to Washington and lobbying, coming back at night and writing letters to all senators and, you know, they, these guys really, you know, shed tears and blood for this cause. And and it was because their their love of nature, I think. And, And so I think that's the message they imparted to us. Also, Muir had this deep faith that never left him. And I think one of the, you know, in the mythology of Muir, when he lost the Hetch Hetchy battle in 1914 and then died on Christmas Eve in 1914, the, the legend has it, well, he died of a broken heart because he lost this big battle for this beautiful valley that he loved. But in doing the research, I realized that was completely untrue. There's no way you could break Muir's heart. There was no way you could damage his faith. He he believed to the very end that people would eventually do what was right, that nature would prevail, and that all we had to do was continue this battle. He also wasn't naive. He knew that you didn't just set up a Sierra Club or create a national park and it would be fine. He said it was an eternal battle, and you know the diff- you know it, it was good versus evil, and that we'd always be fighting that battle. He knew that. He knew there was a tension between the resources we have. And how they're going to be used, whether they're going to be used in a very utilitarian way or they're going to be used for us in a spiritual way. But even there again, you know, history's not as black and white as we tend to make it over time. Muir worked as in factories as a young man. He 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 made shovel handles and broom handles, and he and he knew that that was a good thing, that that made the lives of people easier. So he wasn't against that, but he was for being smart in the way we used our resources. Understanding that the spiritual side is extremely important, and that we needed to protect our our beautiful places, our giant sequoias. We haven't even talked about that, but what he witnessed and and bore witness to then was you, you know a major monument in in his life, really, in in gift to us that that didn't exist at the time. Nobody else was defending these
0: three thousand year old trees. Hmm yeah, and I, I agree with what you're saying, and I think one challenge we have in some ways is is both a challenge and an opportunity in that we don't newspapers and magazines don't have as central of a place in our society and it's been replaced in many ways by social media tools. And it's great because it democratizes a lot of things. but then there's a lot of voices. There's a lot of different voices, you know, all over the place. Some Some have veracity in what they're saying and some don't. And so then the challenge becomes for the modern environmental movement is is how do you how do you have leadership? And I think there's some there's some leaders. I mean, people might point to Greta Thunberg as a leader or people might point to certain organizations that are, are leading the way. But it seems like we're in a much more chaotic ecosystem and in, in some way without maybe definitive leadership. Would you agree with that assessment?
1: Well, I, I think that we probably all feel that there's a lot more chaos in our lives right now than there used to be. I mean, there used to be a more curated world in terms of information access, whether it's publishing, you know, in, in all areas that, you know, there used to be a system that information was filtered through. And when it got to us, maybe it was more reliable. Of course, it was more reliable than, than every voice being out there you know on on the internet and that sort of thing so you know times are changing i think that uh, that probably the pendulum will swing back in some ways and we'll look for more curation and trusted leaders to to set up systems that help filter out information and create you know books and in media that we feel like we can maybe trust better and so uh, it's the world we live in. I, I don't think it's all negativity. I think you know the fact that uh, we can get a lot more voices out there. It, it, you know, serves some some good purposes too.
0: Yeah. Okay. So a couple fun questions before we close up about Yosemite because we're talking about it. So I want to get your take. So I'm going to give you a couple either ors. You just choose one or the other. El Capitan or Half Dome. Half Dome. Why?
1: It's there's just a magic, a poetic magic about Half Dome. I was just there in October and and got caught a photograph of it with the uh, the sunlight coming through. Magic moment of just Half Dome lit up in the in the shade. And I found it very powerful. You know, El Capitan's amazing too. I think it's become a bit of a, a physical feat, you know, with free solo and these sort of things, which fascinate me and, and I think it's wonderful as well. But you gave me an either or, so I I took a gut shot. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Next either-or,
0: Glacier Point or Taft Point.
1: Well, I think Glacier Point with the 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 magnificent Roosevelt Muir photograph that was taken there. It's really an icon of the environmental movement. And I launched into my book with that photograph. We don't know who the photographer was, Mm -hmm. but it 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 says so much. And you know, the way that they're positioned. Everything about
0: it, I think, is magical, and it's a special place. But yeah, you know. I would agree with you. Taft Point gives me the willies, and Glacier Point gives me a sense of awe. But they're both fun to visit. What is your favorite trail to hike in Yosemite? Well, I you know I I really loved
1: climbing up the beside Yosemite Falls. Mm. Uh, it, it's a tough hike. But when you get up there, and for me, you know, studying Muir, being right there where he really had his first sort of magical discovery of, of the valley and what it meant in that whole environment just meant a lot to me. Mm.
0: You
1: know, I, I would also say that the, the tiny, you know, I'd like, the, the tiny little trail like the trail from the tunnel view up to Inspiration Point is, we shouldn't overlook it. You know, you come in at the tunnel view. It's it's a beautiful view, but you've got a lot of buses and a lot of people there, and a, and a lot of distractions. We you, you you take the trail behind the the parking lot up a mile, and you're at Inspiration Point, and you'll see four or five people there over the course of an hour, and you can sit there and contemplate the view and experience it in a different way. So I think all the all the trails are important to get off the the beaten path and and find your your place to to exist with. Yosemite more, more fully.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that the underrated trails are the underused trails because sometimes you can be on the Mist trail and you feel like you're on the New York City subway and you're like, what am I? I'm in a park. My favorite trail that's, I guess, a bit underrated is Mirror Lake because I just like, you know, there's not, it's just a walk really, but you're just walking along the base of Half Dome. And you're just, you know, kind of like a walk in the woods and just hearing the water as it comes down through the valley. I wouldn't trade that hike for really any of the other ones. Okay, two more questions on Yosemite. Should we think about decreasing the number of people that are permitted to visit every year? That's a tough question. I think, you know, your your
1: answer would be, no, we should knock that dam down in, in Hetch Hetchy and have the second Yosemite. Yeah. So we can get, you know, more people in there. You know, boy, it, it gets to a point where you when you have too much red tape, it 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 becomes a mental block and you lose the freedom of being able to access it. So I think that we should I, I wouldn't immediately advocate that. You know, I was there last October and found plenty of, of moments of solitude and reflection. And, and it's tough when you get in a, in a, you know, a chain of cars or, you know, campers and that sort of thing and a little bit frustrating, but, but, but I don't think that would necessarily be the right move at this point.
0: Okay. Last question on this topic. What do you make of the article that was written in the Atlantic about National parks being returned to indigenous control. There was a great book by MCAT Anderson called "Tending the Wild" about indigenous practices towards nature. And there's been a, a movement towards this in a lot of ways. What is your take? I think it's complex, and I think that it's good that we're thinking about
1: these issues. You know, a lot of a lot of questions are raised, but but why why public lands? I mean, if you're going to start there, I mean basically, Westerners came to America and took all the lands, you know, so why would you just pick the public lands to, you know, give back? So I think there there are probably, you know, there's some complex questions. Muir, I think, is sort of somewhat unfairly saddled with some of these issues because he's taken on the moniker of the father of the national parks. Um, What I think it's lost potentially here is that Muir was fighting the industrial complex that was obliterating nature, and he was so, you know, focused on that that maybe he he could have done a better job at acknowledging the indigenous peoples that lived here. But when you read his body of work, you see that he really respected indigenous peoples; that he admired the the light footprint they had on the land, the way they could live off the land, and he really castigated. The white settlers that came in and just destroyed the, you know, the 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 wealth seekers that came in and would would shred the landscape in any way to extract money out of it. So I do think it, it, it's it's very good that we're thinking about these issues. Muir did live through a period of you know industrialization, of the Gilded Age, the you know Reconstruction, all that. So much was happening, and it was a time you know when. The, when the American bison and the passenger pigeon were, you know, destroyed, and and so in in the indigenous population was, you know, it was genocide going on. You know, it was just it was it was a, a, a you know an awful time in some ways. And so you 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 do wish that maybe a man of of sort of this greatness and so connected to our wild places had had you know a little more vision on that aspect of it. I mean, he did he did recognize. He was, he, you know, the wildlife side of it, he was distraught at. But uh, anyway, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a complex question. It's kind of the similar vein that you can't return to Eden. You can't recreate something that existed because the world has changed and transformed and just shifting control of national park systems kind of capriciously or, you know, maybe, you know, without also giving the help that's required Seems like it would create new problems. And so it's it seems like it's a complex problem. I like the ethical side of it, but the actual logistical side seems challenging in many ways. Let's <laughs> let's shift to our last section, which is books. I have a few questions before I get book recommendations. Is Remembered Yesterdays worth reading? Well, I think it is. I'm not sure how
1: many people will want to pick it up and read the whole thing, but they're wonderful passages in it because Johnson knew so many men of his day men and women but Nikola Tesla Mark Twain you know obviously Muir presidents you know he was he was present at so much going on and at the center you know of of culture in New York City so i, I certainly think that there's a lot of value in it I benefited from the fact that it's not that well-known today and I could go in there and see that there's an amazing story. You know, what I told you about Johnson's early life largely comes from, from that book. So, you know, if you're, if you're a student of that period or you're interested in some of the things we're talking about today, yes.
0: What can we gain from reading and what are some of the interesting things that you gleaned from the medium but also the content of 19th century magazines. What what's unique about them and is there is there a value in going back and looking at those?
1: Absolutely. The you know, they were really the record of the time with newspapers and magazines, but a lot of intellectual thought was was going into these magazine stories and and so I think if you want to understand the period and the complexity of the period, I mean I'm always amazed at how as we move away from history, it gets crystallized more and distilled down to something that ultimately is in some ways false. And we look back on it and think, oh, times were simpler or, you know, they thought this or that. When you go back to that that day, and you look at what's going on in the you know in the literature of the time. You'll see a plethora of points of view and thought, and stuff that will amaze you in how advanced the thinking was. You'll see some stuff that you you can't believe how backwards it was for coming from intelligent people at times. But it 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 opens up a, a vista into a time. And that's what I love about history and getting in there and getting messy, rolling up your sleeves and and seeing how complex and wonderful it is. It, it really gives us, it sheds light on the time we're living through and the chaos we might be feeling. It existed back then too, yet there was a certain order that existed then and exists now. And you look for parallels and you look for strengths and you know things we can learn from it. So, But I, I think periodicals of the day are certainly a great way to do that.
0: Okay, last question, what are three books that you'd recommend for people that are interested in these topics or adjacent topics about nature, the environment, or California history?
1: Well, you know one book that I I really love if you're going to read Muir now, you know, all of his books are interesting, but John of the Mountains is one of my favorite, and that is a collection of his journal entries over a long period of time. What I love about that is you're right there. Almost what he, he's thinking is going down on the page. And it was edited by Lenny Marsh Wolf, his biographer, Pulitzer Prize winning biographer. So it's selected, curated, but it, but it's fascinating. And for me as a writer, certainly it was, it put me on the spot with Muir. It, it you know it was so close to what he was thinking and doing that I felt like I was there and I could trust in that because it, it didn't go through another long lens of editing and thought and Positioning into other works. So I think if you want to get, you know, sort of right on his wavelength, that's that's a great place to go. A, a, a book that I, I really love that I I read just is background on the whole California and what has gone on with the 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 the, the, the water rights and issues is Mark Arax's The Dreamt Land, which is a beautifully written book in both personal and objective in you know, in in looking at how the, the landscape has been changed by the alteration of the waterways and what is created and what the repercussions might be with, you know, a lot of empathy, I think, for everybody involved as well, which makes it a beautiful book and one that has a lot of power. So I really enjoyed that. As a third book. Hmm. Which would I pick? I I really, I enjoyed, uh, that might be too specific, but the letters of of John Muir and Gene Carr edited also provides a, a great window into Muir's life in California and the relationship of Muir to his mentor who was sending people like Emerson in, in the Valley to find Muir what that meant to him, what that meant to them. And it sheds light on a a, a bit of history then. Maybe also, if I may, two years before the mast is, is one of my favorite history books of all times, really. Because when I read it a long time ago, I realized this is brilliant history telling right here. And I couldn't understand why it's not used in schools more. It's like you're giving a survey history that that I think turns a lot of young people off from history. Whereas here you have from the eyes of a young person seeing California in its almost primordial state. And you know, it, it's such a, a, a beautiful book to read, I think, and gives us a, a, a baseline for what California was like before it had mass population, before the gold rush, and, and that the world really changed there. So I would recommend
0: two years before the mast as well. Yeah, that's a great recommendation and one I love. I want to encourage my audience to go pick up Guardians of the Valley, your new book, and hopefully get it at your local bookstore. What's next for you? Ah.
1: Well, I have a, a few things in mind, one of which is a book I was working on when I turned my attention to this one. And I've done about a third of a book about our first Admiral, Matthew Fontaine Maury. Some of my background is I've, I've done, I wrote a biography of Patrick O'Brien, who wrote the Master and Commander and the the 21 novels set during the Napoleonic Wars that, that the New York Times called the best historical novels ever written. And so I have a love for the maritime world two years before the Mass was part of that reading. And and I think Farragut had a fascinating career and one that has a lot of lessons to, to be learned. So I will probably
0: return to that. Great. Well, I really appreciate you talking with me. This was a great conversation and I learned a lot from it. So thank you. Thank you, Jordan.
1: I, I really enjoyed being here.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.